Let me ask you this question. This is going to get serious here. How many of you watched wrestling on TV growing up? How many of you remember those old days watching like Hulk Hogan and Sting, Macho Man Randy Savage? You guys remember watching that? That was like a man's soap opera. Like women, they've got their soap. We've got wrestling. And as a child, I loved it. I, I, I thrived on watching those guys beat each other up. And then as I grew up, I got to middle school, and all of a sudden there's this coach that's saying, hey, we're recruiting people to join the wrestling team. And I'm like, really? I can do elbow drops and pile drivers on people? I'm in. So I joined the wrestling team and find out I can't do those exact sort of things. They didn't allow that. But what I found in wrestling is it was great because I got a, I mean, I was always, I wasn't the biggest guy, if you can imagine that. Uh, but I got to wrestle against people my own size. I didn't have to wrestle against the big, tough, scary guys. I could wrestle. And I found out I, I was actually pretty good. It was, it was a pretty good little season where, where me and there was a couple other kids in my grade and in middle school, man, we, we kind of had some skill in this. And so then it gets to the point where freshmen in high school, Eisenhower High School, and we walk in and we're kind of like, kind of proud of ourselves. Like we're, we've arrived. We're, we're excited to see what happens. And we walk into the wrestling room on the very first day of practice. And we're introduced to the new coach, Alberto Cardenas. That name rings different feelings inside of me. Because I remember that very first day, Albert Cardenas, he said this. He said, I've seen most of you wrestle. I've been in the Valley long enough. I've seen your middle school matches. I've seen your high school matches. I've seen most of you wrestle. And I'll tell you what, you guys have some skill. But he said, it's not skill that's going to help you achieve greatness. It's going to take conditioning. He said, here's what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen. He said, I'm going to say to you wrestlers, if you will go with me through this and go through this condition, and we're going to go two weeks of boot camp. If you make it through these two weeks, I won't cut anybody, but if you make it through these two weeks, man, I think we're going to find greatness. Now, I've never been to hell, but that was pretty close. Like Albert Cardenas, he, there was something wrong with him. Some, some of the things he made us do. Uh, we would go into practice, and it'd be a two-hour practice, and we'd do like a half hour of like working on some moves and some different things, and then he would literally run us for an hour and a half. It was horrible. We had these older upperclassmen who had wrestled on varsity before, and they're just quitting like left and right. And he was making a point to remind us, hey, remember this big senior tough guy? He just quit because he couldn't handle it. And we're these freshmen. We're like, we don't even know what we're doing. So we're, we're getting through, and, and me and my couple of buddies, you know, we're, we're actually kind of, we're beating a couple of the upperclassmen. We have a shot at making the varsity team and, and wrestling varsity as a freshman, which is exciting. And then I got to the second week, the second week of his boot camp. Now, you could tell who was on the wrestling team because all day long during school, we walked around like old 80-year-old guys. Oh, 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 because we were so sore, right? You could just tell who was on the wrestling team. I remember it was that second week, he had put us through uh, a horrendous workout. If you remember, uh, Eisenhower, our, our wrestling uh, room was actually um, a side gym upstairs. And so there was these, these stairwells on either end of the gym, of the wrestling room. And, and I remember this workout. Here's what he made us do. He made us run down and up the stairs, uh, then sprint across the gym, drop and do 10 push-ups, and then run back down the stairs and sprint. I mean, we did this probably an hour. It was horrible. In fact, I remember he put a garbage can at the bottom of one of the stairs after the second kid lost his lunch. It was horrible. Uh, we, we do this. 
And then he's like, hey, I got this. We're going to end, end practice. We're going to end practice. We've got 10 more minutes. And I'm like, all right, that sounds easy. Except we're going to do 10 minutes straight of wall sits. Now, wall sits, basically, you have to put your back against the wall, and you have to bend. And your legs have to be at a 90 degree. So you're holding, and it is horrible. And he's like, we're going to do that for 10 minutes. And then he goes around and gives us 10-pound weights and says, you've got to hold these weights out here. And I'm holding this, and I'm dying. And I fall down on the ground, and I'm like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And I remember Coach Cardenas, in a very sympathetic way, got down right next to me. He said, this is hard. He said, Kevin, but if you quit now, you will always wonder, what if? What could have happened? And then he said some other words and said, get back up on the wall. And I got back up on the wall. And I'll tell you what, I made it through the boot camp, and we had a great season. I wrestled varsity. I, ran, I won some tournaments. It was a great season. It was fun. But it makes me think, have you ever had that situation where there is maybe a job, maybe a relationship, maybe a circumstance in your life that is just hard? It's difficult. It no longer feels fun. You're not enjoying it anymore. And it almost feels like it would just be easier for me if I just quit. It'd be easier for me to, to, to go find greener grass somewhere else. See, as humans, we kind of have this predisposition, do we not? Where we avoid pain. We don't like difficulty, so we try and, and get out of it when we are in it. And so we're quick to pursue what we would consider the easy life. We're quick to pursue something that looks funner. And so when a situation is difficult or overwhelming, we're quick to say, I'm going to go try something different. The question is this, how many, times, how many times have we missed out on something great that God wanted to accomplish because we quit too soon, before God was done? How many of us have stunted our growth as Christians and as people because we quit before God could finish training us and taking us through something to make us better? In fact, uh, maybe you've seen the movie Pursuit of Happiness. You saw that movie, I don't know, it's probably 10 years old. I love that movie. It's a story of Chris Gardner, who's played by Will Smith, who happens to be one of my favorite actors. And in that movie, if you remember that movie, if you've seen that movie, I'm going to give you a little bit of a preview about it, I guess. In that movie, Will Smith and his wife, they're having some difficulties. They're, they're, there's tension in their relationship over some financial problems. In fact, it's actually interesting to note that financial uh, problems is one of the leading causes of divorce in our country. And so uh, Will Smith and his wife, they're having these financial problems, and, and it's really frustrating. They're in a heated uh, argument, and his wife says, I'm not happy. I I'm not happy anymore. And Will's line is, then go get happy. Go get happy. And his wife leaves him and his son you don't see her for the rest of the movie. The story goes on, the Will's character. He goes through some incredible hardship and difficulty. But then, after he remains faithful through all of that, he enjoys incredible success at the end. This morning, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here at Restoration Church, kind of what we do, we want to be able to study the whole counsel of God. So we don't pick and choose passages. We just try and work through... Um, uh, books of the Bible and just allow the Lord to, to speak to us through that. And today, the Lord has led us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, the book of Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church, probably similar to ours. 
in a culture of Corinth, in a city that is probably similar to ours. And he's writing this book to the Corinthians and saying, I want you to center your life around the gospel. He said, this is the core thing that you should build your life about. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done for you. And in his letter, he is answering some questions and giving some application on, here's what it actually looks like to to anchor your life on the gospel. Here's what it looks like for you to remain faithful in the gospel in practical areas of your life, in sexuality, in business, uh, in the church. And today, he's going to deal with an issue that was common in Corinth and is an issue that is equally important for us today. Because the Corinthians, they found themselves in that situation where they had these difficult circumstances that they're dealing with. Maybe it was some marital struggles. Maybe it was a job that was difficult. Maybe it was relationships that were hard. Where things just, they weren't fun anymore. And it was easier for them to just go with what the culture does and just give up and quit and go look for greener grass elsewhere. And Paul's message, Paul's message today is a reminder to the Corinthians and a reminder to us about the sovereignty of God. That there is no circumstance, there is no relationship that God does not have control over. And just because we go through things that are hard does not mean that God is not still present, that God is not at work. The message of Paul that he's given to the Corinthians and given to us today is that as God has been faithful to us, which we like, we like the fact that God is faithful to us. We, we, we bank on that. We want to know God has promised to, leave me, to never leave me nor forsake me. We love that promise. And Paul's message, as God has been faithful to you, we ought to be faithful in our circumstances. Either to give God the opportunity to work and do something amazing, or just to simply reflect God's faithfulness that he's given to us through our faithfulness to others. So in this text... Paul's going to start addressing marriage and divorce, which is a relevant topic because statistically, 95% of us are going to be married. And out of those marriages, half of those will probably end up in divorce. In fact, I would say that every one of us in this room, every one of us watching online, most of us have been touched at some capacity by divorce. Some of us have been through that pain ourselves have been through that hardship. Some of us have had our parents go through that. Friends, people we care about, family, people we love. And as people go through that, we've been impacted by that. It's affected us. And a Greek city uh, like Athens or like Corinth in Jesus' day, man, divorce was just as common back then as it is today. And so here here you have these these, uh, Corinthians who have placed their faith in Jesus and trying to figure out, how do I follow you? But then they're looking at these difficult circumstances around them and saying, man, it'd be easier for me to just get out. And so this is where Paul says, hold up a second though. Before you leave, here's what he says, verse 10. To the married, I give you this charge, not I, but the Lord. Meaning, this isn't just me, I'm quoting Jesus here. He says, to the married I give you this charge, the wife shall not separate from the husband. And if she does, she should remain unmarried and be, uh, or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. I want to be clear, just this is Paul's instruction here. Paul saying that when God gave us the gift of marriage, when God gave us the gift of marriage to humanity, he gave it to us so we would actually fulfill those vows that we say. When we stood on the altar... 
And we said those vows, for better or worse, till death do us apart. God's intention in giving us marriage is that we would actually fulfill those vows. And why is that a big deal? Why, why does God expect us to fulfill those vows? It's because marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a picture of God's covenant to us. See, a covenant and a contract, oftentimes we get these two words mixed up. Covenant and contract are completely different. A contract says this. A contract says, I agree to do this, and if you agree to do that, then we'll have this relationship. We understand how that works. I go to work. The church has a contract with me where they say, Kevin, you do these things for us, and in return, we will pay you this amount of money, and that's the contract. And if either one of us breaks those contracts, we have the ability to say that contract is now null and void. Often, most of our relationships are a contract. That's the way that they are designed. But a covenant is different. A covenant is a picture of God's relationship to us, where God made us that promise. Remember that promise? God made us that promise that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, even when we don't make him happy, even when we screw things up, even when we sin and and, and break our commitment to him. God says, I'm devoted to you. I'm going to continue to love you, continue to give myself to you. That is what the picture of marriage is supposed to be like. Us reflecting how God feels towards us, towards our spouse. See, marriage is something that is holy. And this is why it's so important for us to grasp that marriage is not a a, a contract, it's a covenant. Because if you're married, you know marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. In fact, I I heard one counselor say, every person who's ever been married at some point, no matter how good their marriage is, at some point has wanted to get out. Why? Because anytime you put two sinners together, you're doubling the sin. You put two sinners together, there's bound to be problems. Because what do sinners do? We're selfish. We we hurt one another. We, we, We give each other grief. We have conflict. Marriage is difficult. And if marriage is simply a contract, that means that if I'm no longer happy, if you don't fulfill what I expect you, then I can be out. But if marriage is something bigger than that, it's bigger than just a contract, bigger than just my happiness, then it changes how we view that relationship. See, marriage, we get it confused sometimes. We think marriage is for my happiness. Marriage is not for our happiness. Marriage is for our holiness. But then Paul gives this clause, recognizes we're still broken people. And there's going to be times where we break the relationship so bad that something has to change. So verse 11, there's this clause where Paul says, if she does, if the wife does divorce the husband, and it goes the other way, they should remain unmarried unless they are reconciled to their spouse. See, again, God's standard for marriage is that marriage is for life. But there are some circumstances where divorce would be permitted. We can see these in Scripture. Because of adultery, because of abandonment, because of abuse. These are some reasons in Scripture that that would give us cause to pursue a divorce. But let's contrast those things because those things are such a limited scope. Notice Scripture doesn't ever talk about getting a divorce because I'm no longer happy. Doesn't talk about getting a divorce because we're incompatible. 
doesn't talk about getting a divorce because we're no longer in love, because the other person has changed. God has a high standard for marriage. And I want to just be gracious here in this moment because I recognize many of us have been through this. Many of us have, have felt the pain uh, of divorce, whether we've been through it ourselves or someone around us. Man, sometimes we view divorce as being like the, the, uh, the greatest sin ever. It's not. There's grace and there's forgiveness for those, for those who have been through that. But we still, I want us to grasp the, the picture of what marriage is all about, which is why it's such a big deal to God. Because I don't know about you, but I love the fact that God has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. It brings me such comfort. I think God wants us to display that kind of relationship, that kind of commitment to the world around us. Then verse 12, Paul deals with a specific questions about divorce within the church. Because again, what happened in, in Corinth is you had these Corinthians who became Christians. I've placed my faith in Jesus, I've become a Christian, but my spouse, they're not a Christian. So because I've become a Christian and they're not, does that give me a reason to divorce my spouse? And this is what Paul's answer is. He says, if a, if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Verse 13, a woman who has a husband who is not a believer, but if he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 15, if the unbelieving spouse separates, then let it be. So what Paul is saying is if, if, you are, uh, if you're married and then you become a Christian and your spouse doesn't, the Christian spouse should not leave their non-believing spouse if that non-believing spouse will continue to be married to you. As a Christian, even if you have a non-believing spouse, Paul is saying we need to honor that marriage commitment. It becomes an opportunity. In fact, here's the opportunity, verse 14. Uh, talks about in the way that the believing spouse, the way that they live their life, in a way that honors God and honors their spouse and their marriage, that has a positive impact on the unbelieving spouse and on the children within the home. That through that example and through that testimony, through that witness, that they would come to know the grace and the love of Jesus Christ through that believing spouse. But again, just this, this basic idea that Paul is saying is that if you are a Christian, whether you are married to a non-believer or a believer, you're, you're called to honor that marriage commitment even when it's hard. Now, Paul is going to take this idea of, of faithfulness. He's going to take it beyond marriage. He's going to say, here's how you handle maybe some other difficult circumstances, some other difficult relationships, some situations in other realms of life. This might be maybe some... A difficult circumstance at work, some difficult relationships. Maybe you've got some difficult family members. Uh, maybe you've got a church maybe that you feel a struggle in. Maybe you've got some situations in the community. Here's what Paul would say in verse 17. He said, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned when God called him. He says, let each person live the life that God has put you in when you became a Christian. And he says, this is my rule in all the churches. Which means this is not just an issue in the city of Corinth and the church of Corinth. It's an issue for all the churches, including ours. Paul is saying he wants us to see the sovereignty of God. He wants us to recognize that God is bigger than anything we can imagine. Our circumstances that we find ourselves in, they're not by accident. God has put you where you are in those situations 
with those people in that workplace, in that family, in that neighborhood, in that school, in that class. God has put you there. In fact, the sovereignty of God tells us that even before we became a Christian, that God was working things in our life. God was, was orchestrating the, 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 the ways of our life to bring us to the point that we would place our faith in him and trust him as our savior. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah said, uh, speaking of God, before God formed him in his mother's womb, God knew him. God set him apart. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God? There's nothing, there's nothing in this life that God doesn't have uh, control over. And so when God has assigned you a place in this life, man, even though we've made choices to get here, we have to understand that God is at work through that. God is still present and at work. And so Paul is saying, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, don't fight against it. Don't fight against where God has placed you. Stay right where God has put you. Give us an example of that, verse 18. He says, he says when an uncircumcised person becomes a Christian, they should not try to remove the marks of circumcision. Paul says, if you are not circumstances, circumcised, there's no reason for you to become circumcised. He says, these are outward actions that don't count towards anything. What counts is keeping the commandments of God. What Paul is saying is that when we find ourselves in situations, whatever situation we find ourselves when we become a Christian, Paul says, don't change it. If you're a circumcised Jew and then you become a Christian, don't try and hide the fact that you were a circumcised Jew before that. If you're not a circumcised Jew, there's no reason for you then to go and get circumcised. Has this idea like this. Let's just say that you're a plumber. You're a plumber and, and you become a Christian. You're like, man, the building industry is kind of a rough industry. You know, there's a lot of rough guys in that industry. And so Paul would say, just because you became a Christian doesn't mean you need to go find godly work. Paul would say, no, God has put you there in a, in a purpose. God has put you in a situation. Maybe for you, you're like, well, I've got an extended family and they're full of weirdos. They're just full of weird people. And it's hard for me to honor the Lord through that. And Paul would say, don't change your situation. God is sovereign and in control. God has put you in a family of weirdos. What matters is not the outward circumstances. What matters is that you keep the commandments of the Lord. You trust that God has put you there. You trust that God will use you. You choose to remain faithful where God has placed you. And you just follow his will. In fact, verse 22, this is a key to the whole text. This is key to the whole, verse 22. Paul says, he who has called you to the Lord, who, he who has made you a Christian, or he was called as a, as a bondservant, as a slave, as someone who works for someone else. They are free in the Lord. He who has been called to the Lord as a bondservant is free in the Lord. Likewise, he who is a free when he became a Christian is a bondservant of Christ. He says, you were bought with a price. See, oftentimes what happens is when we look at God, we kind of swing on a pendulum to two extremes, one side or the other. On the one side, we view God as being the master. We view, we view him as the, the, the demanding father. That we've got to, we've got to, we've got to, uh, he demands our obedience. And we've got to follow all of his commands just right. And so we kind of have this idea that, that we have to focus on all these outward actions in order to earn God's approval. Or maybe it's not us trying to earn God's approval. Maybe we feel like, man, I got some struggles in my life and I want other people to accept me that I'm a good Christian, that I'm a good person. So I'm going to focus on all these 
rules I have to follow so that other people think, look how godly they are. That's on the one side. We view God as being this master and all these rules we've got to follow. On the other side, man, God's the God of grace, right? He'll forgive whatever I do. It doesn't matter what I do. I can do whatever I want because God's going to forgive me. And so you've got to have these two extremes where we work so hard to earn God's approval and then we don't really care about God's approval because we just count on his grace and his forgiveness. See, the gospel message is a word of grace as well as a word of challenge to all of us who would receive it. It's a word of grace and a word of challenge. It's a word of grace because we've been bought with a price through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And when he says we've been bought, that means that we are free. That means we are free from from the penalty of sin. Our sin has been forgiven. Praise God for that. Which means if we've gone through something difficult, we've gone through and made some mistakes in our life, praise God, we have that freedom to know we're not held bound by our sin anymore. We are free, which means that nothing else has a claim on us. You think about all the things that we pursue when we're in sin. Oh, I'm going to find all my satisfaction through money. I'm going to find all my satisfaction through relationships, through status, through all these things. And that'll make me complete. Paul says, listen, the word of grace is that you are free from those things. You are free. You have received the love of God. You are accepted by him. And as that, we have the ability to experience his peace. So we don't have to pursue all those other things. Those things don't have to be our masters. We get to experience the peace of God. But the gospel is not just a word of grace. It also is a word of challenge. Because again, he just said we were bought with a price. Which means that we belong to him. We belong to Christ. Which means that we serve his will, not our own. Which means, yes, there's this idea of grace and forgiveness, but we are not free to do whatever we please. We're not free to follow whatever feels right in the moment. We're not free to choose what's easy over what's right. We are called to obedience because he's bought us. He has bought us. Here's how it plays out. The question we have to ask ourselves is, who really is a master of my life? Who is in control? Who do I serve? Do I serve my feelings that come and go? Do I serve my happiness? Do I serve fulfillment in this life? Do I serve my desires? Or do I serve Christ? I don't know. It may just be me. But I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking, you know, my feelings... My feelings, that I always want to, my feelings, they've never died for me. They've never risen from the grave for me. You know, I think about happiness, and I'm like, we all love to pursue happiness, but I, maybe it's just me, but happiness has never sacrificed himself for me. Happiness always seems to be that thing that dangles in front of me and says, get this, and then you'll be happy, and I get it, and then there's something else out there. And there's just always more and more and more. And Christ is saying, listen, I, I have sacrificed for you. I have bought you. I have given my life for you. I think that means we serve him, not ourselves. Paul 
Again, he's writing to this group of Christians dealing with difficult circumstances, maybe difficult relationships like many of us deal with in our life. And Paul knows that our natural tendency is to take the path, path of least resistance. That when we face difficulty and hardship, we want to escape the hardship and the pain and go find something easier. And we always think the grass looks greener on the other side. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, what Paul is saying to us this morning, is that your faithfulness, wherever God has placed you, it allows God to work. It gives God the space to work and do something amazing, do something marvelous. And guess what? Even if that doesn't happen, our faithfulness, it displays our faith in him. Our faithfulness, when we are faithful, even when it's hard, that is us saying, hey, I want you to know I follow Jesus, even though it's hard. See, what I found as I've followed Christ for the last 20 years or so, been involved in full-time ministry for the last 15 years, what I have found is that when I want to see God do the most powerful things, the biggest, the greatest things, the most marvelous stories. You know where God tends to do that? It doesn't tend to be when we're going from one thing to the next, trying to find the easiest thing. What I have found is God does the most tremendous work when we are faithful to where he's placed us. This is where God makes beauty from the ashes, takes the broken things and redeems them and turns them into something beautiful. This is where God takes our mess and turns it into a message. This is where we see the power of God is when we are faithful to the places he's put us, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. Listen, does that mean, does that mean that we can never leave our situation? We can never go find a different job? We can never choose to pursue some different friendships? That's not what it means. But there's a difference between leaving something in pursuit of fun and leaving because you've been released by God. In fact, I remember I had a, uh, my mentor years ago, Jack. I remember God had, had called him to a church. And, and, and it was great in the beginning. And then Jack really struggled with the church. He struggled with a pastor. The pastor, uh, uh, he just wasn't a strong leader, uh, wasn't willing to make hard decisions. And I remember Jack being so frustrated and I'm like, Jack, Jack, why don't you leave? Jack, you're so frustrated. Why don't you leave and go to another church and you'll be happy? He said, because God has called me here and God has not released me. And I, and I was like, I don't get that. Like, if you're not happy, just go. And he said, no, God has not released me. I'm going to honor where God has called me to. There's a difference between us pursuing something because it's easier, because it looks better, versus whether or not God has actually released us from it. See, if we would trust that God is working things out, man, what kind of power would God display in our lives, in our circles, if we would endure through some of the difficult things? Here's, here, here's the application. Where is it that God has placed you? What relationships what places that are, what situations have God brought you into that might be difficult, that might be hard? What are the areas of your life that makes you want to daydream 
for something different, for, for greener grass somewhere else? What area of your life do you feel like maybe you're at the end of your rope? Is that your workplace? Is that within your extended family? Is that a hard class at school that's just difficult and makes you have to work so hard? Is that within your church? Listen, I want you to know I get it. I, I, I get how hard it is. Relationships, man, they're messy. People are difficult. But before you quit, before you move on, before you cut those people out, would you just consider if God is trying to do something through you? Would you just consider, listen, does God have a purpose for me here? Is God trying to do something here? Because it could be that God is working things out behind the scenes in ways that you don't see, preparing to do something great that you can't comprehend at this point. That's where we talk about hindsight is always 2020. That's where we go through something difficult. And we're like, man, God, I don't understand it. And we get on the other side of it and we're like, wow, God, look what beautiful thing you did here. How many of us miss out on seeing that because we quit too early? If we quit too early, we might be limiting what God wants to accomplish. Are you willing to surrender to God and allow God to lead you? And not allowing your feelings to lead you. So if God's calling us to faithfulness, I want to give you just a little bit of encouragement on how we can endure through the hard times. A little encouragement for you. Number one, remember, it's not about you. It's not about you. Here, here's the problem. Maybe it's just me. I think it's most of us. We got this dab-gone selfishness within, inside of us, right? We got this dab-gone selfishness. We always look out for ourselves. We look out for number one, right? It's always, we look at our life and we're like, what's easiest for me? What's best for me? And what does scripture teach us? What is the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? To love God, to love other people as yourself. I think that means it's not about us. Philippians 2, again, my favorite passage in all of scripture says that we would consider others more significant than ourselves. I think what scripture is teaching us as Christians that we should have our eyes looking not towards ourselves but looking towards other people. And so when we're in those difficult circumstances, we've got to figure out how to get our eyes off of ourselves and start looking at other people. Instead of thinking about how this affects me and how I don't like it, we start thinking about other people because chances are once we take our eyes off of ourselves and how hard it is on ourselves... Once we actually take our eyes and put it on other people, and you begin to see other people in a different light. Maybe actually some of those people that are creating that difficulty for you, you look at them and you're like, man, I see what they're dealing with. That's why they are the way they are. Because they've got this thing that they're carrying, this burden they're going through. And I couldn't see it because my eyes were on myself. But then when I take my eyes off myself, wow, and I can actually have compassion towards them. Listen, if we're going to be faithful, I have to remember it's not about us. Number two, if we're going to be faithful, we've got to get our cup filled within the community of God. We've got to have our cup filled. See, the worst thing that we can do, the worst thing that we can do is think, well, I can go through it alone. I can go through it alone. That's what Satan loves to have us do. Satan loves to think 
you're all alone. Nobody cares. You just have to handle it by yourself. Now, when you get connected to, to the people of God, to, to having life-giving people around you, people who will support you, people who will encourage you, people who will point you back to the truth, people who will walk through difficult things with you. Now, let me just say this. Listen, getting your cup filled doesn't mean you have people you just go and complain to and you have immature people that give you really crappy advice. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, about can, you can find anybody who can agree with any dumb idea that you have. Isn't that true? We're talking about we need people, we need people who have proven themselves to be faithful. We need people around us who have a history of maturity and faithfulness. We need to get those people around us. Because I, I can say for me that when I'm down, when I'm struggling, when I'm going through some hard stuff, man, I need people to remind me of the truth that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God is at work, that God isn't calling me to a life that's easy. He's calling me to a life of faithfulness. Those are the people I need around me. Not the people who are saying, hey, just take the easy way out. No, I need people who have the hard conversations and point me back to truth. Third thing, if we're going to remain faithful, and this is for you, those of you that are married, we've got to take the word divorce off the table completely. In fact, this may be a conversation for you to have with your spouse on your way home or this afternoon after church. Agree just to completely cut the word divorce out of the dictionary, out of your conversation. Do not leave the back door open. Again, why? Because marriage is hard. Marriage is incredibly hard. It's hard for everyone. It's hard for Samantha and I. My wife will assure you, the curse of sin has affected our life as well, has affected our home. I'm just as complicated and jacked up as anybody. My poor wife, pray for her, please. But it's so significant that we have that conversation that divorce is not on the table. Because then when issues come up, when difficult things come up, instead of saying, man, I'm going to find the easy way out, now it means we actually have to have some conversations through some difficult things. It means that when things get difficult and we have a big deal and we can't solve it on our own, we actually have to get some outside counsel to speak into our relationship because things are hard and we can't find resolution amongst ourselves. It is so significant. Listen, I know some of you are saying, well, you don't know my spouse. My spouse is a jerk. My spouse is horrible. We're just, we're not compatible. Yeah, you know, you know what the secret is? Two selfish sinners are never compatible. We're not. That's just what happens. This is why the secret to a good marriage is not that you be compatible. Because you're not going to be compatible. Compatibility is something that is cultivated. You understand that? Compatibility is something that is cultivated. And how do you cultivate compatibility? This is what we talked about last week. Again, which is just living out the core gospel principle. It's not about me. Your marriage is not about you and your happiness. Your marriage is about you sacrificing and serving your spouse. Stop making marriage about you. Guess what? When you stop making your marriage about you and your happiness, guess what? Pretty soon you're going to find we're more compatible than I thought we were. When you begin to repent, when you begin to sacrifice, you're going to realize, man, I love this person. There's this compatibility because we are in practicing out what the gospel calls us to. We use our words to build each other up, not tear, tear each other down. 
And that's when God begins to bring beauty into that marriage relationship. Listen, I will say marriage is difficult. And if you're in a season right now and you're like, my marriage is, and I don't even know. I don't even like this person anymore. I'd love to sit on the other side of the church today. We're so frustrated with one another. Listen, if that's you, man, it's okay. Man, I encourage you to get some outside help. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a counselor. Bring some outside counsel to help begin to resolve some of those things. In fact, I would even say for couples who are not struggling, couples whose marriage is not falling apart right now, man, I would still encourage you to talk to someone. I'd still encourage you. There's so much that we can benefit if we learn how to communicate better with one another and work through conflict resolution skills. These are things, whether your marriage is struggling or not, we've got to grow in. We've got to get better at it. Fourth thing, listen, if we're going to remain faithful, fourth tip is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Again, this is where we go back to that, that gospel message. Remember, again, this whole book is all about us putting, uh, uh, allowing the gospel to be central in our life. See, what is the price that Christ paid for us? Remember, he bought us. He bought us, which means he lived a sinless life as our example. He paid our debt to sin, and he died to sin, and he rose from the grave to forgive us of our sin. And then Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to live within us so that we would have the power to say no to sin and selfishness and yes to God and his will. See, one of the keys for us to actually live this out is that we have to continually put our faith and trust in him. Not in our wisdom, not in our circumstances, not in our happiness, not in what's easy, We've got to be people who continually put our faith and trust in him. You know, you ever hear that lie? You hear that lie. You hear it all the time, even in church circles. God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than... You know that's a lie? You know that God puts us in situations that are hard and difficult? So we learn exactly how to do this to actually have to put our faith in him when it's difficult, when we don't know what's going to happen, when we can't see the outcome. God puts us in situations where we say, I can't trust in myself anymore. I can't trust in this other person. I can't trust in the circumstances, but I'm going to trust God. I have nowhere to look but to him. There's absolutely times that God leads us to that point where things are so difficult, we're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to make through this. God's saying, listen, would you trust me? Would you look to me? Not to your circumstance. Would you look to me? Would we rely on him and trust in him? God, through God is, is, is saying through the Apostle Paul, as I've been faithful to you, I'm calling you to faithfulness. Even when things are difficult. Because when we are faithful in these moments, we give God the ability to do something tremendous, powerful. We get to see God at work. Is there a time that God would lead us to something different? Absolutely. Well, let's not, let's not confuse our own feelings and our own desires with God's will. Let's give God the ability and the space to work 
And then even when he doesn't, let's still show the faithfulness of God. As he's been faithful to us, we extend that faithfulness to those around us. We pray.